Angerina. Okay, just just wander in, just sneak in the back of the room there. Do what? Okay, I'm good with that. I, I'm a firm believer that that if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, do those kind of things to people, you'd better be able to take it. And uh, I've learned to take it. I've got thick skin, and uh, I don't have any feelings. They've all been burned off over the years. So it's good to see you all this morning. Um, my wife sends her gratitude for those of you that have been praying and feeding us. Uh, she's doing well. She's 10 days, 10 days, 11 days out of surgery and is doing very well. Uh, we're grateful that the human body only has two knees, as I'm sure you are, Candy, only two. Um, she's still struggling. She woke up early this morning because her meds guy didn't get her any meds before she went to bed. And she woke up about 4.30 this morning mad enough to, well, in enough pain to hit me. So... Um, she was going to be with us this morning, but just it's just too much. We uh, worked her pretty hard this weekend. She went to a wedding with me Friday night. and uh, Physical therapists are sadistic people, and they pretty much abused her pretty hard Friday. Uh, so uh, we deeply appreciate your prayers as we have experienced this together. This is, <coughs> pardon me, you know, it's kind of odd. The husband is usually the one that is cared for by the wife, and frankly, I found out it's it's a whole lot easier to care for people, a whole lot harder to care for people than it is to be cared for. It involves work, and uh, I'm pretty adverse to work. Uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll start this morning's class. <coughs> Pardon me, Father God. We thank you, Lord, for the time you've given us. For the opportunity to study, to open your word, to see what is in there, to uh, allow this information to pass into us, and may we retain it. May it bring glory and honor and praise to you in Christ's name. Amen. What do we know about angels? What do we know about angels? Well, we know the guy teaching class grabbed, grabbed, grabbed the wrong set of notes. What do we know? Hey, Daryl, would you hand me my bag, please? What do we know about angels? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller. God sends them. What else do we know? Created. Created beings. Anything else? What? How many? That's right. And uh, frankly, the whole idea of a six-winged creature is uh, pretty horrifying to me. And I uh, really hope I never encounter one of these dudes up close and personal because I'm not so sure that I would fare very well. The term angel means messenger or representative. God sends his angels to do his work as both messenger and a representative. Anybody have any favorite angel stories out of scripture that when you think of angels they come to mind? I have a couple. I see people present these pictures of angels and there's always this round round-faced, uh, baby-like, angelic, wouldn't hurt a fly, you know, this uh, baby-like image. And yet I find at the Garden of Eden, God puts an angel with a flaming sword. Pretty much one or two, I believe there were two, because Scripture uses a plural, to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden for all eternity, he put two angels. And that's all it takes. The pictures of them standing there guarding is enough for me to know I don't want to mess with them. And the second one is a pretty humorous account in the book of Numbers. There was a prophet for hire, which, how many of you have trouble with the concept of a prophet for hire? It seems kind of funny, don't it? This guy named Balaam was being paid by Israel's uh, enemies to curse Israel. And every time he tried, instead of cursings coming out, there were blessings coming out. 
and they were mad at him. Well, Balaam traveled by donkey, and at one point after he had tried several times, the, tried to curse Israel, as he was walking, the donkey ground him off on the wall and then laid down. This is Numbers 22. And Balaam begins to whip on him, and the donkey turns around and speaks to him and says, you know, don't you see the angel with the flaming sword ready to split your head open? And that's my favorite angel story, because the donkey could see it, but the human being couldn't. And, and in that, the, I see the power of God to put these angels in a place to make corrective action against people. And just the whole idea that the donkey turned around and talked to Balaam, and he didn't freak out about that is why I love the story so much. I included it in one of my term papers, and I wrote in there to the professor that, you know, we shouldn't think more of ourselves because, after all, God did speak through a donkey, and the professor kind of underlined it to let me know that he didn't appreciate the shot that I'd taken at him. I don't know why I had trouble with that class. He must have taken it personal. So things we know about the angels, if you'll follow along in your handout, I win five pages. None of the other guys have managed to make five pages. Uh, let's talk about what we know about angels. First off, they possess intelligence. First Peter 1 Peter 1.12. Angels are not these mindless, no direction, uh, robotic creatures. 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you, to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these things which the angels long to look into. And he's talking about salvation. The angels didn't get it. They didn't understand. They, didn't, they don't fully grasp why God would take upon human form, die for mankind, and then send the Holy Spirit to seal these people. They, they look, tried to look into it. They had the intelligence to want to look into it, but would never fully understand it. Angels were made a little higher than man in that they are a spirit being and can travel in and out of certain realms that we as humans cannot. We are, we're a finite being. Those of you that have ever had any surgeries or been sick or have watched the calendar flip by some 50 years like young Mr. Scott back there, um, you know that we are limited. They are not. They're not limited by time and space. They're outside of that. But they do not understand or did not understand the concept of salvation. They desired to look into it. And then the second blank there is they have feelings. In Luke 2, verse 13, Luke writes, he said, And suddenly the appearance with an angel appeared, appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You'll notice is one of my favorite sticking points for Christmas. The angels weren't singing. Um, but they have feelings. They were joyous at the appearance of the Savior. They knew that this was significant because they'd been in the presence of God. And they knew that this was something that he had promised to do for mankind and they were seeing it come to fruition. And then they, in Jude 6, they have a will. They have desires. They have uh, the ability to make choices. Jude 6 says, "...and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. So they chose, those that fell with Satan chose to go that way. <coughs> Pardon me. You know, it's, we tell our kids, at least I told my kids, that bad company corrupts good morals. You know, if you run around with people that are of substandard character and morals, that eventually you'll probably wind up that way yourself. That's why we encourage our children to hang out with people that are of good character, of good, solid, moral character, so they're not swayed to go the wrong way. Not that way with these angels. These angels made a knowledgeable choice to follow Satan and left their home and their abode in heaven and fell along with Satan as he rebelled against God, which we will cover a little bit later on. 
Part B, they are spirit beings, and they, are, they have some form of an angelic body, but they're not limited like us. I mean, I don't know other than what Scripture has told us, because frankly, folks, just like with all the subjects in Scripture, I don't have all the answers. I know a lot of people that have a lot of answers, but none of us have all the answers. What do they exactly look like? What does a six-winged creature that we saw in Ezekiel or Isaiah, what, what, does, what did he look like? Does, I can't picture six wings and two he flew and two he had tongs. And, you know, I, I, can't, my mind, I can't wrap my head around that. I can't, I can't tell you exactly what that looked like because, frankly, it's, it's beyond my capabilities. I've got a pretty good mind when it comes to uh, seeing word pictures and, and try to use words to explain things in picture form. I've got a pretty good mind for that. Sometimes that's about all it's good for is stories and pictures. But I can't really paint that picture. I can't really tell you what that looks like. But I trust in Scripture that says that this is a horrifying animal. This is, or a creature, this is, this is something that God has created for a specific purpose. And the first one is to glorify him. And the second one is to make sure that when they show up, man knows it. Nobody ever encounters truly an angel that isn't changed by the encounter. They're spirit beings. They move without the limits of the physical body. Boy, I don't know about you, but it'd be nice not to have to worry about my physical body. It'd be nice not to have the aches and pains and, and all that that we go with. And then they are unable to reproduce. Mark 12, 25. Um, in that passage, the writer of Mark says, they're neither given or taken in marriage. And they talk to them about them having, after their own kind, they're unable to reproduce because they're a created being. And frankly, as we will see a couple notes down in E, they're always masculine. There is one exception possibly in the book of Zechariah there in my notes. as a veiled reference, but angels are masculine. God sends them as men, as male figures. And D, they do not lie. Luke 20, 36. At the end of the class, I'll tell you where a lot of this information comes from. And believe it or not, it's free. 20, 36. Luke 20, 36. For neither can they die anymore. They are like the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And there, the references there that the angels cannot die. They are eternal. They will always be around. They may either be in heaven with God. They may be part of that glorious time when we're all together with him in heaven. And then again, they may spend the rest of eternity locked in the lake of fire. So... Um, they don't die in many ways. In many ways, their fate is much worse than ours. They don't have an opportunity to be redeemed, those that have fallen. And then, then G is they are innumerable, Hebrews 12. And I know most all of us understand this passage, I believe, and I haven't quite got there yet, but I do believe he's talking about the potential of calling angels to to deliver him from the cross, but yet he chose not to do that. The angels could have came and certainly delivered him from the cross. But when you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, uh, yeah, the heavenly Jerusalem and the myriad of angels, um, the myriad of myriads, there's more than you can number. You know, this, the old, when I first got saved, we listened, we listened to this guy, this band, and... Uh, and they were right out of the rock culture, and they all got saved. And you could tell all these guys had done a lot of drugs in their unsaved days, and their music was a little cutting edge. But one of the things they said that always stuck with me was, when Lucifer fell, he took a third of the angels with him. And that means we've got him outnumbered two to one. And since we don't know how big that one was, knowing we've got him outnumbered two to one really doesn't make much sense. But it tells me that there's more of them than we'll ever count. There are more angels than we will ever truly know. There are literally myriads. You know, that's a word we don't use very much. We don't, we don't throw that around, although um, some of us would say our world is full of a myriad of problems. 
There's none of those problems bigger than God can handle or Christ in the life of a believer can't correct. Firm believer that all change comes from the ground up. But as you see in our notes, my notes, one of the most interesting characteristics of angels is the fact they're organized. Michael is the only angel designated as an archangel. He's the top of the heap. He's the big cheese. He's the one that is over all of them. He is the one that God has given that authority to. Uh, I know some will say there's Gabriel, but he's not. Michael is the archangel. He is, if you will, he is the leader of all the angels. He um, bears that responsibility. God has put him in that position, created him for that place. If you read uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, he's called one of the, um, there may be others, but called the chief of, one of the chief princes. He, um, he's the big cheese. He's the one that everybody looks up to. Under these rulers, there seems to be other governmental agents, angel functions. You know, it's like everything else in our world, whether it's, whether it's spiritual or physical, there's always a hierarchy. There's always, there's always a balance of power. There's always someone at the top. There's always someone in the middle. And then, unfortunately, there's always someone at the bottom. Um, in our jobs, hopefully your job has some degree of, of hierarchical control. Um, I have a boss I've never seen. Um, I know his voice on the phone because that's about the only way I ever hear from my boss. I don't think I've seen him probably more than once in the past year. But I know he's my boss, and I know that he has authority over me. And I know from time to time that I have authority over people. And those all have to play together to make things happen the way they are. If, if we were all working together and none of us were in charge, what kind of chaos would that be? You know, it's, have you ever watched children play? Eventually, someone comes along and leads the group. Have you ever noticed? There's always that one kid that everybody wants to follow. And you always hope that's a good kid, right? Because if not, it's going to be a train wreck. They're going to be acting like Grice children when nobody's watching over them. So the angels are the same world, or the same way. There is a hierarchy to them. There is a hierarchy to the way they behave, the jobs they do. Um, and in part C there, it's even funny, it says there seems to be a guardian angel assigned to believers and one to children. How many of you have seen the bumper sticker that says don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly? Does that mean that your guardian angel is going to protect you from every stupid thing you've ever thought of doing? Probably not. Okay, because there's, there's consequences to all of our actions. I believe later on, under the part under Satan and demonology, you will find that the guardian angel is there to help protect you from the wiles of Satan, from the things he desires to do to believers. And uh, it's not just to uh, allow you to act a fool and do stupid things and expect the angel to protect you from all harm and injury that comes your way. It's, it's not that way. All of us have a, a guardian angel, but he's really not there just to make sure your day goes okay. He's there to protect you from what Satan is trying to do. And, and then in part D, there's um, the seraphim have been charged with the worship of God. What do angels do? Part, you know, I hate it when my notes don't match up to what I'm doing. Yeah, there we go. What do angels do? The ministry of angels seem to fall into well-defined categories. They work on behalf of the various individuals or groups. And pardon me for a minute while my head spins. There we are. Too many pages, too many numbers. They do a lot of different things. For the ministry of Christ, for instance, in part one there, they predicted his birth. I would have still liked to have seen the shepherds on the hillside when the angels appeared. I would still like to have seen what that looked like. How did those uneducated shepherds, how did they react to that? How, how would you react? If you're out on your, let's just use modern times, you're out at your campsite and you decide to go primitive camping so you don't have electricity or running water, 
and you're way out in the middle of never never land enjoying yourself nobody being around which is where my wife would like to camp and all of a sudden the sky is lit up and angels approach you and they start telling you about something magnificent that's going to happen how do you respond how would you respond i would i would just be scared to death frankly when things like that happen god sends these messengers these emissaries to tell them and it's a great and wonderful story they bring and they predict the birth of the Savior. And then secondly, they announce the birth of the Savior. <laughs> Luke 2, 3, I'm sure all of us can remember the Christmas story. And, and in particular, my mind always goes back to the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Anybody remember that one? Remember the, old, the original, not the one that they've remade and remade and ruined, but where Linus comes up and he stands on the stage and he tells the Christmas story. And, He's got the blanket over his shoulder, and you know, normally he's sucking his thumb, and, and uh, he recounts the Christmas story for us. And then, number three, they protected him as a baby. Uh, the devil wanted him dead. Herod wanted him dead. Uh, a lot of things going on that were against him, but the angels helped protect him. And then in Matthew 4.11, they strengthened him after his temptation. You remember... A few weeks ago, I told you the temptation wasn't to try his human side. I believe the temptation of Christ was set up to show his impeccability he could not sin and to show his power over the flesh by the controlling through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of that, his humanity was weakened, his body was weakened, and the angels came and strengthened him. They're prepared to defend him from his enemies. And he didn't call on them. You know, on the cross, as Christ hung, he could have called. Just one angel would have been sufficient, I'm sure. One would have done the job. But he could have called a legion, which is 6,000 and more. He could have called thousands and thousands of angels. The old song we used to sing, he could have called 10,000 angels. And yet he chose to endure for us, but the angels were at the ready because he is master and lord of the angels. The angels are here, were there to protect him. And then they strengthened him as well in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and then finally, the great part is they rolled the stone away and announced his resurrection. So the angels are always busy. They were extremely busy during the time of Christ. They were extremely busy as he walked this earth and came to minister and to redeem us. They were pushed to be his protectors and his minister. Now, what do they do for believers? You know, I don't think I've ever had, now I can tell you, I've never had an encounter with an angel other than the one I married. The rest, the rest of everything else in this world has just been so-so. I've never encountered an angel. But I know they're here to help me. Specifically, they're involved in answering prayers. Acts 12, uh, 7, I believe it's 7, 8, 9, and 10. I just put 7 in there. This is the account of, uh, well, let's just read it together so we know. You know, someday, someday, God is going to grant me my ultimate wish. Anybody know what my ultimate wish is? That it would grant me the gift of organization. Because frankly, I could lose a black hat in a white room. Acts 12, 7. Let's go back to 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping with two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over them in prison. Chained to two soldiers behind closed doors being watched. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and the light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and roused him saying, get up and the chains fell off his hands. So angels are often used to help answer prayers. God sent them to free Peter at, 
at whose urging and request. The church was praying fervently for his release. God heard that, and God sent his angels to uh, facilitate, if you will, the great jailbreak. They give encouragement in times of danger. Later on in the book of Acts, Acts 27, as you see there in your notes, 23 and 24, for the very night an angel of, for the, this very night an angel of God to whom I belong, whom I have served, stood before me and saying, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Paul was sailing. A storm came along. He protected them, encouraged Paul, and then Paul in turn encouraged those he was sailing with, and then caring for deaths of believer. I believe this strikes home to us as we have lost one of our own here just recently. Let's look at uh, Jude 9. There's a book we don't see much of. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued with the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce a railing against the judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He cares for us in our death. God will send his angels to watch over us and to guide us. Um, let me get back to the book of Luke. The study of angels, this, this isn't like a science book. This isn't like a science study where you can just pick a chapter and go. Because literally angels are throughout the entire Bible. They show up in, um, I think there's 189 different references to them. And you just can't, you can't kind of lump it all together real handily in one spot. You have to go searching. You have to go looking. You have to dive. You have to be willing to spend time with it. Uh, Luke 16, 22. And in Haiti, or, and now it came about the poor man died and was carried away with the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So the picture there is, is that in death, believers are carried um, to the bosom of the Father. Believer, uh, believers, believers minister to angels. The passage says that, you know, we have cared for angels unaware. Our lives are to be a picture back to the angels of what a redeemed life is supposed to be because they're supposed to see God reflected in what we do and what we say and how we act. They see us. They understand what God is and who God is and how God is. And we are supposed to minister to angels by showing them what a redeemed wife life looks like. Not a redeemed wife, a life. What a redeemed life looks like. And we do that, like I said, by living an exemplary life in Christ. Are we going to fail? Yep. We're going to make mistakes. Yep. Made some this morning already. Guarantee it. But far and away, we should be living in a way that reflects Christ in everything we do, not only because it brings glory and honor to God, but also because the angels see it and they will begin to understand greater what it means when we say that Christ has redeemed us. And then even have a ministry to unbelievers. Think about the story of Herod. Herod was smote by an angel and died because of his unbelief and his behavior. That's a pretty horrifying thought to think that, you know, and we see it in Scripture with Ananias and Sapphira and a few other places where God has acted swiftly and used angels to judge people for their behavior. You know, zap, you're dead, and just that quick. And God uses all of his tools that are available to him to accomplish exactly what it is he wants to do. There is no questions that he has ultimate authority to do all those things that bring him glory and honor. And then at the end of the age, angels will act as reapers who separate the righteous from the wicked. We see the angels again. We always kind of see the picture of the grim reaper. You know, that dude has got the sickle and he's dressed in the, the death shroud and he's going around. Of course, my favorite picture is the one out of the Muppets. The Muppets Christmas Carol. I don't know how many of you have ever seen that, but that is by far the greatest version of the Christmas Carol ever done. It's the best. Um, you know, that, that big dude standing there with that sickle, that's, to me, that's, that's the end of the time. That's the reaper. And I realize angels don't look like that, but the idea that someone is, someone's going to pay 
and he's there to collect. Covered a lot of ground really quick. That's about three weeks worth of class right there. There have been seven quizzes in, on the way. Let's talk about one character we know as Satan. <clears throat> Does Satan really exist? Or is the concept of Satan just strictly the accumulation of all the evil that's ever been done in the world? Does he really exist? You know, on radio, they don't hear heads bobbing. Does he exist? How do we know he exists? Because Scripture tells us he exists. How do we know he exists in an experiential way as we look around the world? <coughs> Pardon me. How do we know by looking around and seeing evil at play? How do we know that we see Satan at work? Because his ways are contrary to God's ways. He is the, if you will, the other side of the coin. I don't want to say the dark side of the force because that would just be stupid. Kind of like the existence of angels. The existence of Satan probably could not be proved to the man who refuses to accept the evidence of the Bible on the subject. But if he did, he would find ample evidence. Number one, it's widespread, found in at least seven Old Testament books and referred to in every New Testament writer's work. He is a theme in Scripture that doesn't go away. He's there. He is mentioned. He is talked about. He, we are warned about. We are told of his character and how he got to be where he is, his start, his fall, and his ultimate final disposition is cared for in Scripture very clearly for us. I have worked with men in just recently that said they did not believe in God. But when asked, they did believe in the devil. I said, well, how can you believe in one without the other? Well, you can't prove there's a God. Well, you can't prove there's a devil either. You can't prove Satan exists. Yeah, but just look around. I said, well, so you can look around and prove his existence, but you can't do that for God. You can't look at creation and say, I see God in the fact that, that everything on the planet has, there's a prey and a predator. Everything in the world has a balance. There's a positive and negative. Look at your laws of physics, your laws of nature, your law of gravity. If you don't think the law of gravity is real, jump off the building. Okay, that's just the way life is. There's, there's one for the other. If there's a light, there's a dark. And of course, he didn't like that and accused me of being a, an idiot. I never tried to dispute that. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I know it. Based on Christ's own words, we know that Satan exists. We know that he's a very real person. He is very present. He is in and amongst our world today, influencing people. And if you don't think that's true, open your eyes a little bit, take a look. You'll see it. So what is he like? The Bible teaches that he possesses intelligence. 2 Corinthians 11.3 He possesses intelligence. He's smart. Scripture says that he was made incredibly beautiful. For I am... I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Craftiness. You can't be crafty unless you're smart. Stupid people are not crafty. Okay? Ignorant people are not sly. Sometimes they get lucky, but they're not crafty. It takes an intelligence to craft a scheme to trap someone. It takes a knowledge to move forward with a plan to ensnare someone. Revelations 12, 17 tells us that he has emotions. How many of you like it when you upset your enemy? You got a guy at work that you don't particularly care for. Is anybody, is anybody willing to admit that? There's somebody you work with that you just don't care a lot for. And sometimes, yeah, I get it. Thanks for being honest, man. Um, 
And sometimes, and I know it's terrible to say this, but man, I get a real giggle out of watching somebody lose their mind. And it just drives, just drives them crazy, and I love it. We had a guy that, he was horrible. Just His OCD was everything had to be in the right place. And we have two kinds of wire nuts in our world, basically, yellow ones and red ones. They come in boxes of a thousand, clear jugs. And he would come by and he would look and he would, he would absolutely lose his mind if somebody had put a yellow wire nut in the jug of the red ones. And he would lose his mind and straighten it out. And as soon as he would leave, I'd go over and put a red one in the yellow. Or I'd take a three-quarter lock nut and I'd put it with the half inch. And he would lose his mind. And I loved it because it just drove him crazy. I know, I'm a bad person. But it, there really is a mistake. There really is. And, I, and I, was his, I was his partner that day. But it just, it just gave me so much pleasure to watch this guy lose his mind because he was a horrible foreman. He was a horrible individual. And, and, but I wasn't the older one. So there were other guys doing things to him too. But mine just, for me, was, it was simple. It was easy. It was right out there. And if he had just asked who was doing it, I would have told him. But instead, he wanted to blame just one particular person, and it wasn't me. And I was good with that. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testament of Jesus. He has emotions and he has a will. 2 Timothy 2.26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been had cal- being having been held captive by him to do his will. He has a will. He has a plan. He is treated by God as a morally responsible person and not a thing. So all those things, intelligence, emotion, and will, classify him as as an intelligent being. They classify him as a moral being because he knew to do right and did it wrong. He had all of the things going for him that should have pointed him and kept him in the right direction, and yet he did not. So instead of just saying, well, it's a thing that went bad, God judges him and holds him as a morally responsible person. I am afraid that is something that we as a society have stopped doing with so many people. We have stopped holding people morally accountable and responsible for their actions. If you have intelligence and you have emotions and you have a will, then you're a morally responsible person and should be kept accountable for the things you have done. I'll get off my soapbox now. Satan is a creature, not the creator, Ezekiel 28, 14. He does not possess the attributes which God alone has. One is omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Okay? So when people say, well, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. Okay? Chances are he was not in the same room with you. Is he in this room with us today? No, I don't believe he is. Are some of his minions here, some of his demons? Possibly. But you know what? Greater is he who is in where? Us. Than he that is in the world. Right? So we don't care if he's here or not. We don't care if a demon's here. We don't care if Satan himself is here. And I'm not short-selling his power and authority and his abilities. But I am going to tell you that greater is he that is in me through the power of the Holy Spirit than anything that evil thing can conjure up today. And should God allow him, he could take my life today, but he can't take my soul. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient, all-knowing. He doesn't know. He doesn't know everything. Only God knows everything. And he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. In other words, he possesses all the creature limitations that we're accustomed to. Be sure he's of higher order than of human beings, but he is not God. Furthermore, because he's a creature... The creator can and sometimes does place additional limits on him. Think about the story of Job. Satan went to, went to God and said, you know, what about this character Job? If I strike him, I'll bet he'll curse you. And God said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to him. You just can't kill him. So God put additional restrictions on him there. So he's under the direct authority of God, as all things are.
He is a spirit being. We've covered that. Um, apparently, he was the highest created angel ever. Well, other than Archangel Michael, because of his, because of this, he retains a great deal of power even in his fallen state. Under the name Lucifer, he was created. He was beautiful. He he had he was adorned with jewels. He had knowledge. He had wisdom. He had insight. He was beautiful. He was God's crowning angel. He was the prettiest thing he'd ever made. And whatever what happened? He sinned. How did he sin? What was his sin? His sin was pride. Quite simply, we'll cover that here shortly. He is an antagonist of God, part C, and his people. The very name Satan means adversary. The word devil means slanderer. His goal is to try to thwart God's plan. He won't fail, but he's going to try. His contentious character is seen also in the designations which Scripture has given to him, namely, number one, there is the evil one in 1 John 5, 19. The second one is the tempter. Number three is murderer. Number four is liar. And number five is a confirmed sinner. Those all pretty much round up his character. Really show us what he's all about. Truth is not in him. He's a murderer. He will tempt you to do the wrong thing. He's the evil one. And he is absolutely confirmed as a sinner. In order to promote this opposition, Satan can appear like a wily serpent. I don't know. I'm not into serpents and snakes. Are you guys into, anybody here, anybody here a herpetologist? I just heard that the other day. The wife used it. That's what it means to handle snakes, I think a herpetologist. I'm not into those things. And I don't know if it's the whole thing with the devil or the fact that they're just creepy. I don't know. How many of you ladies like snakes? You like snakes? Wow. There's one in every crowd. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with you, man. And snakes and spiders are all in about the same category for me. It's creepy. They're just, they're just creepy. And if I lived in Florida where they're having trouble with the pythons and stuff in the Everglades because people turned them all loose, I'd move. I saw a picture yesterday on the same line of somebody that found that an infestation of brown recluse spiders. My response was, dig a moat around the house, fill it full of gasoline, leave a trail, set it on fire, problem solved. Burn the house down. Don't get your stuff out of it. It all can be replaced, okay? Well, I'm glad they don't talk anymore. You know, I'm really glad animals don't talk anymore. I'm a little trouble with that myself, a talking snake. Um, but yeah, it could very well be. And, and I just don't like snakes, not only for what you just said in many ways. I just don't like them. I held a couple of little snakes when I was younger. I held a, a reticulated python in one hand and a baby something or the other in that hand. And and kind of like the old bucket list thing, well, okay, I'm done with that. Don't ever have to do that again. And they were just, they were little snakes. They were just babies. I figured I could throw them if they got out of hand. He's a ferocious dragon in Revelation 12, 3. And then probably the one that gives most Christians the most trouble, pardon me. <coughs> He's an attractive angel of light. It's amazing how many people will follow something that looks good and sounds good, but when really cut apart and looked at, when you do, uh, if you will, a, an, an autopsy on it, if you will, when you cut it open and look at it and really start to dive into it, you find out how rotten it is. People go, yeah, but on the outside it looks so good. I think of Mormonism. I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses. On the outside, Mormonism looks pretty good. Good family, uh, you know, a lot of kids, yards cared for, good job, wife seems to be 
in line with the husband, and everybody kind of follows down the stair steps. Everybody does what they're supposed to do. On the outside, it looks pretty good, and everybody says, oh, they're a great family, glad they're my neighbors. You cut that dude open, and it's rotten to the core. Okay? Mormonism is just theologically wrong. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the redemptive power of Christ. And that's just to start. We could go for hours and hours and hours in it, but we won't. Um, but they will use this burning bosom uh, testimony. Said, well, we knew it was right because it burnt within our souls. And some will say that, that because it looks so good, an angel of light, I believe God is leading me that way. Well, God has never led you to do anything wrong. God doesn't lead you to sin. That's not how it works. Satan does. <coughs> I didn't have allergies till I turned 50. What was Satan's sin? Satan's sin was pride. And you know, it wasn't that he was deprived. He had been involved deeply with the blessings of God. He had seen God. He had seen all those things that he was. In Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15, we see these things about Satan. Number one, he was full measure of wisdom. He was, he was given the full measure of wisdom. Perfection in beauty. Maybe that's where the saying, beauty only skin deep comes from. Maybe that's where that comes from. Had a dazzling appearance. A place of special prominence as the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. Sounds to me like he was, he was pretty much right there next to God. And then verse 15, the Bible says about the origin of his sin, till unrighteousness was found in him. It's clear that Satan was not, a cre not created as evil. The verse declares he was perfect when created, and he fell because of sin, because of pride. In 1 Timothy 3, 6, we see that that was his downfall. And then verse 14 of Isaiah 13, 14, 13 and 14, he says, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. It's pride. That's why God hates pride. Pride allows us to try to elevate ourselves to the point where we are better than everybody else. You ever know anybody in your life that thinks they're the top of the heap? I wonder what it's like to be the richest man in the world. Not for the money. Money's neither here nor there. Money comes, money goes. I don't know of a rich man ever that would say he wouldn't trade all of his money for another year of life. Time is the most valuable asset you can have, not money. Money comes, money goes. But I wonder what it's like to be the richest man in the world and wonder, is there somebody closer? Somebody got more? Is someone going to make more? Am I still going to be the richest man in the world? Is Bezos going to suppress past Bill Gates? Is he going to pass the Saudi or the Sheik or whoever? I've often wondered what they think of, and I wonder if, if they lay in bed at night or whatever they do, I wonder if they think, man, I'm as good as it gets. Look at me. I've often wondered. And I've often wondered, too, do rich men carry cash? Does Bill Gates go to a restaurant? Does he carry cash? Does he carry a credit card? Does he just sign his name? How's that work when you're that rich? I mean, how's that work? Somebody buy you lunch all the time? I don't know. Has Satan been judged or will he be judged? And the answer to that is yes. He has both been judged and will be judged again. There are at least six judgments which Satan has experienced or will. I've listed them there for you on page five. He'll be barred from his original position and have privileged position in heaven. A judgment was pronounced on him in the garden after the temptation of Adam and Eve. And that's where we come up with the serpent, crawl around on his belly and eat the dust. The central judgment was at the cross. The cross not only provided us with a means to salvation through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but it also was an ultimate judgment of Satan. Satan was judged at the cross. He will be barred from all access to heaven during the tribulation period. He'll be like 
sitting on the sidelines, not being able to communicate with God, not try to, you know, sway him, which he will have no success, no success at anyhow. At the beginning of the millennium, he will be confined to the abyss. And you'll notice in your notes, it may not say this, but it should, not as incorrectly translated bottomless pit, Revelations 20.2. That was a note that I found from a guy named Charles Ryrie. Ryrie believes that the King James translated that phrase wrong when it put bottomless pit, it should say abyss. And, and a lot of the things that he wrote and talked about, he made sure he put that note in there. And I, I don't know why, he just did. And then number six, at the conclusion of the millennium, he will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. So yes, he's been judged, and yes, he will be judged again. At this time, we see, um, we see Satan as he is. He has fallen. There's more to this study. There's more to Satan. There's probably, uh, probably another three or four pages that can be generated easily, and then it devolves all the way into demonology, where we talk about the structure and the person of the demons that were originally angels that fell with Satan. So if, you know, the leadership of the church will give me another Sunday, we might go through that. We'll have to, have to put my, you know, my request in for writing and have the, uh, the board look at it and see if they'll do an approval or, you know, whatever. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But for now, that will conclude what we have on angels. And I know it's a lot. I know I'm a talking head. I know it. But that's why I tried to give you the paperwork so you would at least have something to reference back look at. And I will tell you, probably the greatest thing I have found online ever, yeah, a book called um, Basic Bible Doctrine by Charles Ryrie is available as a free PDF to download. Charles Ryrie was one of the great uh, commentators and Bible scholars of, of yesteryear. Uh, Ryrie Study Bible, many of you probably have carried one of those from time to time, and his book is, um, is available online. You can get it free. Much of this come from there because, frankly, um, the dude just did such great work. He was a great theologian, good scholar, well-respected, and I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. The wheel has already been invented. We just need to have, learn how to make it go around a little better. Okay. So let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you, Lord. For these brief moments, for the time we've had, for the opportunity we've had, and now we'd pray that all that we strive to do in this next upcoming time would bring glory and honor and praise to you in Christ's name. Amen.